This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out watchcityresearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your book editor and host. I'm joined this week by Morgan Pang, who wrote the Not All Interfaces Need to be Simplified chapter. Welcome, Morgan. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me today. Welcome, and thanks for uh, writing your chapter and for joining me. Can you tell folks a little bit bit about you? Yeah, well, my name is Morgan Peng. I'm originally from France, but I live in Hong Kong, Osaka, and now I've settled in London. I'm a design director at Society Journal, so it's a French financial group. And I work on the corporate and investment banking side. And so basically mm-hmm. to give an idea of what we do with the team, we design products and experiences on the business to business side. So for startups, corporates, financial institutions, etc. Mm-hmm. And do you tend to work more in research, design, a little of both? Uh, everything. I mean, with the team, I mean, not me personally, because... Mm-hmm. I'll be too stressed, stretched, sorry. Yep. Um, but with the team, yeah, we do cover everything that goes from research to prototyping, usability testing. Uh, we have a design system council, user research council, etc. So the team has mm-hmm. grown over the years. Gotcha. Great. And how large is your team? So we are about 20-ish. So, mm-hmm. And the team is split between London and Paris. Gotcha. So thanks for that. Um, next, can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory, how you got started in UX, how you discovered UX, and how you got to where you are today? <laughs> yeah, there's many ways to break into UX, and I guess one mine is one of uh, the many ways to do it. Mm. So I originally studied finance at school, and I, I did a business school, and so I first worked on financial products. So I was explaining them to investors, and uh, so I did that in Paris and Hong Kong. And basically, little by little, uh, we started to have more and more uh, explanations to do on the different kind of digital channels we had. And I like to say that I was actually an undercover designer because I was mm. doing freelance design work on the side, but completely unrelated because it was mainly in video games design. So I see very far from finance. Yep. Um, and so basically one day the two, my two activities clicked together because at work uh, we realized that we really wanted to have uh, a real in-house design capacity and vision. And we needed to do this study to see how we could build that. And um, to be honest, UX back then, I think that was like, what, 10 years ago, it wasn't really a world that was very known, and especially not uh, right. with less less in Europe, I would say. And but we knew that we had to the same way that we train Salesforce. We we say we have one voice for salespeople. Uh, we knew that we had to have like the same cohesive voice on the web. And um, so this is how basically I started the study and little by little, I discovered more of it. And we then started to, I started to hire the first designer on the team. And basically this is how we build up the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And you've been with the same company um, uh, since then? Yes. So mm-hmm. um, actually someone said once that it was very interesting to follow me 
because basically the trajectory of design is kind of like basically starting with me. I mean, yep. we had designers before, but you know, it's the classic story of the lone designers kind of sprinkled around the sure. organization and siloed and alone. And we really wanted to build this kind of in-house capacity to be able to really have a vision and have a set of practices that can scale. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so we started, I mean, I started alone on a few projects with some methodologies and then we hired more people who kind of, kind of brought with them their expertise. Um, I like to say that I remember there was once a time where we were not doing user flows. So basically mm. the first designer came, he was like, what? Okay, we need to do user flows. And then, you know, little by little, then we had like, what? Oh, okay, we need design system. What? Oh, we need user research. And this mm. is how we kind of built the whole team. Piece by um, piece. Yes. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very, I would say that's being able to take the time to hire well and, you know, take time to fit, like to, to have this team culture that builds up little by little is kind of a luxury. Because I know that, you know, sometimes companies suddenly they realize that everyone's doing design and, you know, they suddenly right. want to hire a hundred people, but you can't expect a hundred people to just join and magically work together. Right. Right. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that in terms of building it piece by piece. How, how about um, getting started, uh, getting to build that team and, and starting to build that team? Do you have any tips for folks who are looking to start build their UX team and, and how they can do so? Ooh, oh, that's a very wide question. Um, it's interesting. I would say that when you're starting to build a team, you may want to look for a, for a very specific mindset mm. because basically um, the people who's going to join your team, it's kind of, okay, it's great because it's kind of all, uh, you know, a blank page. You have to write everything. You have to build your, you know, decide on your tools, build your methodologies, your processes, but you also have to do a lot of uh, kind of organizational work. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you may face people who don't understand anything about design. So you really have to have this kind of early settler mindset. Mm. And um, I think definitely like when we hired the first or first designers in the team, they had this mindset. Um, also because they didn't know much about finance and, you know, banking, but they had maybe families who work in there. So they kind of, they were kind of already a bit familiar with, you know, the pain points when they heard their like families talking about, you know, uh, the different challenges they face at work. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and uh, I think now, uh, know that obviously once your team has grown and you have all the different capabilities, we can hire more now for potential. So not someone who has a, this, a specific, you know, skill set that, for example, um, as I said before, we're not even do, doing use, uh, user flows. And then we had to hire someone who was more, uh, I would say, stronger in visual designs for a design system. But now we can, we kind of have the luxury to just, okay, this person has potential. Let's just bring that person in and see what happens. Yep. But yeah, at the beginning, I think you have to be very strategic to what kind of skill set and mindset you want in the team. Mm -hmm. Great point. Yep. Great. Thanks for all that. Um, now your chapter, not all interfaces need to be simplified. Can you tell us about that, please? Oh, yeah. So I'm going to expand on my work, actually, because <laughs> as I said, I've worked primarily in finance and um, so now it's been several years 
I've been working in complex design. So as I said, for financial mm -hmm. professionals and employees, so it can be anything from trading platforms, financial platforms, uh, tools we use internally. And um, I think due to the fact that I was on the business side before, I never really fall, fell into the trap of trying to oversimplify your tools. But uh, this is a trend I've seen more and more. And especially, you know, uh, uh, you may have seen, you know, like the before UX, after UX on right <laughs> on LinkedIn, Triple, yep. uh, Medium, etc. And um, yeah, I, I think it's because part of this trend, because, you know, as designers, we like to be very visual, to make something very visually pleasing and minimalist. And so that bring kind of leads into the tendency of removing all the information. And I've seen that more and more into, uh, you know, during our design interviews where we meet candidates and they just know about consumer products or maybe because they've been doing a bootcamp or like a very short, you know, training. Um, so they are very, very kind of biased uh, and they only know about consumer products. So they think that everything should be as simple as, I don't know, an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they look at our screens, like because sometimes I would give them an example, they were like, oh my God, I would never be able to use that. But they're not financial advisors and we're not asking them to be financial advisors. And so I realized they're kind of projecting their own mental model or what should be good for the users without mm -hmm. even having, you know, without even sometimes talking to the users. And in my, in my case, it's professional users. Yeah. So, um, and to be honest, we actually made this mistake. I remember like uh, when we had the first designers, we kind of transformed a trading application into like something super, super simple. It was like glorious, like progressive disclosure, step-by-step, -step, et cetera. And when we shared that with uh, the stakeholders, they looked at it and they were like, oh my God, this user experience is terrible, but in a bad way. Mm. Um, what happened and, there? So can we were kind of expanding, we've done everything right. We've, we've put all the labels, forms, like white space, like progressive disclosures. But actually what happened is for them, when they are thinking about the financial product, they're kind of thinking, you know, several attributes together. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like, I, I suppose, I guess there's probably people more familiar with design, but when you talk about typography, you know, you have letter spacing, line heights, etc. So it's not just like one thing. You, there's a set of attributes that comes with uh, styling. And for them, so the, way, the same way we think about styling and design, um, they think about a set of attributes in financial products. Mm -hmm. So if you start to break it down, you're kind of stopping them in the flow of thinking the product. So it's actually kind of this oversimplified interface is not helping them at all. It's kind of just stopping them in their flow of work. Right. We like to say, you know, stay in the flow. So it's the same for designers and for professionals in finance. They want to be in the flow of their work. So when we put all those, you know, stoppers, it's not helping at all. And, and, and what um, would help their flow of work? Is it having all the information on the screen at once? Is it, uh, are there strategies here? Oh, so that's when it's overcomplicated because right. when we can't decide, we're just, okay, we're just going to put everything. And this is how you end up, you know, with the kind of cliche of the super convoluted screens, etc. So I'm not saying that we need to put everything on one screen, mm. um, but there's a balance to attain. And basically that's actually uh, the whole content of the, of my chapter 
is how do we find the right balance between the not overcomplicated and not the oversimplified? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, especially as designers who have to work in this complex space, how do we do to survive? Because we are not experts, uh, whether it's you know in finance or healthcare or whatever. Um, actually, it's very funny because um, I've seen some screens because you know in healthcare you have the screens that we see, for example, when you run or when you, for example, use um, Apple Health. Mm-hmm. But then uh, if you've seen how they redesigned the screens for, you know, um, doctors, it's completely different. There's like so many acronyms, a lot of uh, database in one small screens, but mm-hmm. that's what they need. And again, that's kind of expanding on my chapter, but basically how do you find it? Well. Um, you have to manage this complexity as designers. Understand that you won't understand everything because understanding everything is basically learning a new job. Um, but there's this way. So you, you have to know when, okay, what is useful for you to know and what are the things, honestly, you don't need to know. Like right. even for me, working uh, 10 years in design, financial design, sometimes when they talk about very advanced modeling, I think my, my brain just shuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, okay, Morgan, I don't, Okay, they can talk about it because they need to make some decisions, but I do not need to know this. Right. That's too much info. The nitty gritty. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, and yeah, and uh, what I, I like to say, it's, you know, we, we talk a lot about you know, design with them, not for them in accessibility. Mm. Um, it's the same here. You need to involve the users because they will tell you if something is a market practice and, you know, that's how they do their job. Or if it's some kind of legacy, you know, behavior that they kind of had to adopt because something was not optimized and not designed for them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of all of this um, that I wanted to cover in the chapter. Nice. And you just mentioned accessibility. Uh, that brought to mind uh, a question in terms of, all right, if you have, if it's if the interface is less simple, are there any challenges in terms of accessibility and presenting that information in an accessible way? Ah, that's an interesting. That's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting question, because um, very often in terms of accessibility, we talk, for example, about keyboard navigation. Mm. And actually, keyboard navigation is something that people who are expert request a lot because they want to go fast, and they want to be able to do everything by keyboard. Actually, when you uh, kind of uh, observe someone using a tool who or even like designers, when we use our design tool, um, you know, there's a lot of shortcuts, a lot yep. of things you can do by keyboards. It's very interesting to watch, actually. And um, so I think the two are not incompatible. And actually, a lot of things are similar. Like, so shortcuts, keyboard navigation. Um, I would say probably the only... Uh, what we've so the only space we had to be mindful is screen readers because it's mm. true that if you have i don't know like a table with a thousand data points right um how do you do that and i actually even when we talk about voice design um i know we were we had like a proof of concept that we're trying to to see how we could do voice design with this kind of very heavy financial table but so far, yeah, well, if anyone listens and have found the perfect solution, please reach out, <laughs> contact me, because um, I think this is where we're kind of reaching the end, like the limits of voice design, because honestly, mm. 
if you have to go through like a financial table, doing it by voice. I mean, today having a screen and a mouse is still like more right. uh, efficient than doing anything by voice. I we still haven't cracked it so far. And something I've run into in the past um, in more complex interfaces is the users need to uh, see a lot of information at a glance. So they don't want to interact with anything. They just want to look up at a screen, for example, and see the information that they need. Uh, a great example from the past is um, uh, an interface change uh, that I saw users interacting with where they had to mouse over for information that used to be just scannable. And they, were, they weren't happy because now they need to interact with the UI in order to see information that used to be at a glance. So to your point, oversimplification is n you know, not necessarily always the answer, especially in enterprise. Mm. Yeah, I, again, it's like, <laughs> um, so I actually did a talk about this and um, I really wanted to find something that everyone can relate to. And since the talk is mainly for designers, what I've done is I actually used uh, like one of the modules of Photoshop, I think the one that you use to set up the character styling. Mm. And I've actually converted it following all the golden rules of form design you can find on Medium, again, Dribble, etc. So, you know, everything is one column, a label, and then the input form, step by step, five step. And so that very tiny little like module in Photoshop became a huge five step process. And um, I think this, when designers say it, it's very, you know, uh, I think it's very visually uh, I think they can really relate to that because they wouldn't want to use such a thing. So every time you want to change a style, going through a, a form of five steps is like a hassle for designers. Right. So what I like to say is like, you wouldn't want to use a tool like that because you're a design professional. So don't do that to your professional users. Yep. Uh, are there instances where it, it is important to do some simplification in, in these complex enterprise applications? Are there, are there, uh, typical areas of a UI that um, need more simplification than others? <laughs> yeah, I tend to say this is kind of my team's playground hmm. because especially when we work on um, kind of redesigns of like legacy tools. Um, and again, this is a classic mistake where um, people have thought that because the user are experts on, I don't know, a certain financial topic, they can just kind of vomit all the data into one page and, you mm. know, users will deal with it. And then what you end up is having a lot of hierarchy problems or, you know, and when there's too much, you can't see anything. There's no hierarchy or, you know, uh, too much information. And so that's why I like to say that this is a playground because what we try to do is reach this kind of simplicity, but not simplistic. Yep. And um, yeah, so this is, I would say this is our bread and butter, honestly. Uh, simplicity without being simplistic. I love it. Uh, are, are there any design tips or things you've learned from users that help you achieve that? Oh, um, yeah. So I think it's in the chapter, but um, I like to say that what really helped us the most, and I guess probably because I'm biased coming from uh, business, but um, I know that um, designers, when they start something, they like to start in, you know, post-it notes, um, design tools, what we, we're doing, and I, I, over the years, that's kind of like uh, a common practice now in the team is like, we actually start in Excel. Hmm. And <laughs> sometimes people are, like, people are like, what? And Excel to this day is probably the best tool to really work on the hierarchy of information. 
-hmm. Because in Excel, they really have to focus on their data. They can't, you know, start thinking about how they want to lay it out, etc. So we actually do a lot of um, data modeling in Excel. Hmm. And this is actually before doing any design work. Because if you try to do the data modeling and the design work, whether it's like high fee or low fee, at the same time, as a designer, that's really a lot to manage. And potentially, even as a designer in any, I guess, complex industry, you first have to understand, okay, how people uh, approach the data and what they do with it. And that's why kind of limiting, it's a bit like saying, you know, when you go low fidelity, you get better feedback in terms of, you know, structure of your information and page. Here's the same. Even before talking about the structure of the page, we need to talk about the structure of the information. Mm. And so, yeah, kind of operating within the limits of Excel. Yep. Make sure that we don't get all the comments, you know, like, is that color right? Is this logo big enough? You know, is this the right icon? All this, okay, at some point we'll talk about it, but not now. Yep. Working in Excel to focus on the content so people won't be distracted by the design and the interactions, sounds like. Yeah, so yeah. I like to joke and say, hey, we're doing high, we're doing low fidelity design work in Excel. I love it. No, that's that's low fidelity content first designing right there in a, in a complex uh, environment. So Excel lends itself to that for the data modeling. It's fascinating. Yeah, and uh, so again, still doing the same joke. We're like, oh, you know, you can actually use a test Excel. And we actually, we've done it uh, with clients. Mm -hmm. on some specific very kind of financial stuff we are we, we're like and actually like a lot of time the kind of mvp is an excel file because we were like okay is that everything you need in terms of data and for them because they also probably have excel you yep. know as a tool um it's easier even for them to kind of say okay i want this information i want that so there there is some obviously some projects where the first step is actually kind of doing like this kind of small MVP in Excel. And then when you realize that, okay, all the data is there, this is the, to our best knowledge, what the clients need, the user needs, then you can, you know, start then thinking right. about the rest of the experience. Neat. Uh, that's very cool. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, for the last portion here, we'd love to get a tip from you uh, for folks either breaking into UX or continuing their UX career. What's a, what's a tip that you have for some of our listeners? Mm. Kind of related to the, uh, the chapter, my tip, I think, would be that there is no magic formula. Hmm. UX design is a job where uh, you learn by doing and also because the practices evolve all the time. If you look at what, hap what happens with design system, I think after a year, it's completely different now, yep. even with design tools. So there's no, you know, this tool is better than the other because at some point, tools going to change as well. And I know that when you first start, it's very overwhelming because first you have to understand, kind of absorb all the words about design, all the terms, high fidelity, low fidelity, user testing, usability testing, you know, all this. Yep. And then on top of that, then you can read everything that people is writing on, you know, medium, which is a good thing. You know, we, I think as an industry, not a lot of industry is sharing as much as us, you know, uh, in the tech industry yep. in general. So that's great. We do share I mean, a lot. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I, even like when I was on the financial side, there was no sharing like that. Hmm. And I don't think every, anyone would want to, you know, spend their weekends writing an article on structured products, for example. Right. <laughs> 
see so but um because there's so much content sometimes yeah i feel it's kind of overwhelming and um i guess what people uh, what i come to realize and what i say all the time is this is not uh, mathematics there's no the solution and especially like uh, for people who work with a lot of engineers this mindset is completely different because yeah. we are dealing with people here we're dealing with different cultures different industries different practices so something that works somewhere might not be you know the right thing for you there's no absolute best solution yep. and it all depends i guess that's why it's very upsetting you know like the designer say oh it depends but it's, right. it really depends <laughs> It's funny, it's the first time It Depends has come up in the uh, podcast, but I mean, that is the catchphrase of, of UX. It, it always depends on the context, on the people, on, on everything. Yeah, and uh, it's so funny because like, I'm trying to explain that to projects because sometimes they think, oh, but I've used the design system and I've done exactly like this uh, project who worked with a designer, so we're good, right? And I'm like, uh-huh, but you want to do that. Like, users need to do that on your project, so it's not going to work. And for right. them, they don't understand because they've, they've ticked all the boxes. They used all the right tools. And then uh, the designer arrives and says, it depends. Right, right. Um, well, and we're never done. Uh, the world is always changing. Interfaces are always changing. And the mindset of just putting something out there in the world uh, and, and you're done is, is no longer the case. Yeah, so that's why there's no magic formula. Obviously, take advantage that so much is shared, but you really have to make informed decisions. So mm -hmm. read a lot, yeah, it's great, uh, but you don't have you don't have to copy paste something that works somewhere, thinking do, that will work for you. That's not usually the case. Great. So Morgan, thank you so much for joining uh, the podcast here and for writing your your chapter in the book. Not all interfaces need to be simplified. Uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you today. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience writing the book with you. Wonderful. Thanks for that. Great. And thanks for joining us today, everyone. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.